0: Greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place or Right Crap. I'm your host, Frank Safiri. And this is an open and shut episode with James LaTwell. Now, I am coming at you from a rather bright and sunshiny day in Central Oregon uh, in the midst of this pandemic quarantine. And I know it is probably pretty strange for for everybody out there listening. But for me, uh, you know, being at home and... Not seeing people for days and days at a time is actually pretty normal, so (laughs) the impact has been a little bit less uh, than for some of you. Uh, One of the places that I've gotten my human contact uh, both before and during this pandemic has been this show, so I appreciate uh, those of you who have reached out to me and of course the guests that I get to talk to. That guest uh, this episode is James Latwell, and I met him a couple of few years ago at a conference, a uh, very genuine, sincere, uh, friendly guy, and very unassuming. I was I was quite surprised when I found out what his uh, actual career background was outside of writing. I'll let you listen to the interview to to find out what that is, but it's interesting. And uh, hit it off with him and uh, really enjoy his company. Uh, before we get to that, I want to remind you that Wrong Place, or Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the gritty, darker end of the spectrum, uh, which, if you are listening to this show, might just be in your wheelhouse. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about Down and Out Books, you can go to their website at downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. While you're there... Pick up Eric Beatner's The Sound of Breaking Bones, which is the uh, April episode, the fourth episode of season two. Uh, it's episode 10 overall. Uh, great episode. Uh, preceded this season by Eric Pruitt, Awesome Maria Bradley, and Holly West. So you can't go wrong with a subscription to a grifter song. Anyway, I might be a little biased. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's dive into our interview with James LaTwell. Well, hey, Jim. Welcome to the show. thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me. I'm trying to remember when I first met you. I think it was at Bouchercon in St. Petersburg.
1: It might have been St. Petersburg, yeah, I know it was at Bouchercon.
0: You were one of those people who was uh so uh kind and welcoming, like you know to to me and I'm sure you're that way to everybody no that really. <laughs> All right. Well, then my personal experience (laughs) (laughs) uh, really helped, uh, you know, helps a guy uh, or or helps another writer feel like, uh, hey, this, you know, I can do this. I can navigate this uh, conference. I'm part of the clan. I'm not a I'm not an outsider. And, uh, you know, there's a a number of writers that tend to go to those uh, conferences quite a bit who who play that role. I mean, Jim Ziskin does it, Holly West does it, you know, mm-hmm. a, few, a few other people do it. Yep. Uh, but you're one of them. And so, uh, you know, I want to publicly thank you for that. And I'm sure there's oh, writers thanks. listening who would offer their thanks as well.
1: No, it's, uh, thank you, Frank. That's, that's nice to hear. Uh, it's it's really a, a nice community to belong to. I mean, coming from our backgrounds, Frank, um, <laughs> it's something very different. And it kind of took me a while to get into that. Like, are these people actually really nice? You know, what do they want?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do he really like my book or is that just something he says?
1: But yeah, yeah, there's there's just some, some really very friendly, outgoing, supportive people. And no matter where you are in the, the publishing pecking order, you you can be down in my level. And I mean, these, these people are just, um, they're always open to help and very supportive.
0: It seems like the vast majority of the authors in you know the the crime fiction writing community the people you see at Bouchercon or Left Coast Crime seem to have evolved to the state where they recognize that it's not a zero sum game if somebody buys your book you know at what cost and and reads about John Penley and and digs it That doesn't mean they're not going to buy Charlie 316 and and read my book. And and so, well, you mentioned uh, your background uh, and and mine, and and they are similar, but you've had a long career in, uh, would it be fair to say corrections? Is that the easy umbrella to put it under? Yep,
1: Uh, Uh, I think that that captures it, yeah.
0: um, And I was surprised to find out the position you held uh, in the California penal system, Uh, actually just at the Left Coast Crime the truncated one down in San Diego, uh, <laughs> the
1: best one-day conference ever. Yeah,
0: <laughs> uh, but you were uh, in a pretty, pretty high-up position, pretty uh, pivotal position there. If you want it, if you're willing to share what that was.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent 29 years in in the Department of Corrections, and when I retired, I was the uh, director of state parole for California, and so that means you know I had like a. A a billion-dollar budget that I was responsible for and about 4,000 parole agents that uh, worked all over the state supervising at that time. I think about 176,000 parolees that were released from, from prison on supervision.
0: There's a few things about the corrections field. Mm -hmm. that uh, uh, people probably aren't entirely up on. And uh, I'd like to explore a couple of those. So parole versus probation. Could you give Mm -hmm. us a quick primer on that?
1: Yeah, in very general terms, because it's going to vary by by jurisdiction. But parole is after prison release. And probation is usually an alternative sentence that either avoids prison or it's on the front end of it where you – if if you comply with your terms of probation, uh, you're avoiding a state prison sentence. So it's more of a community sanction than a than a follow up after a prison term.
0: And not everybody who gets out of uh, having been incarcerated is necessarily on probation or parole, right? That's true. That's
1: true. Now, uh, in the last couple of years here in California, we had some legislation passed that Basically, eliminated supervision for some of the lower end offenses, uh, non-serious, non-violent uh, kinds of guys now don't get supervised or they go on a community supervision by local probation rather than parole. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a hybrid now. It's not as clean as it used to be mm-hmm. uh, where everybody used to come out of prison and uh, was supervised on parole.
0: And the slang for that would be to be on paper. hmm. Right. Uh, maybe another one you could clear up real quick before we go any further is uh, the difference between prison and jail, because I think there are people out there that still uh, don't. I mean, it's painfully obvious to people right. in our professions, but uh, they right. get kind of stuffed together into the same term sometimes.
1: They they do. And it's become a little bit more muddy than it um, than it had in the past here in California. The, but the bottom line is jail is a local function like pretrial detention. You're usually in jail. Uh, or you could be serving a term of a year or less in jail, anything more than that, and you'd go to state prison. California, though, it, to lower the state prison population, is actually having people serve prison terms in jail. So they're physically housed in the jail, but they're serving three and four years.
0: So it's almost like uh, the state is renting jail space or renting prison. Uh, uh, cell space from the local jail, in effect.
1: That's a, a good way to think of it, yeah.
0: So, okay, jail versus prison, parole versus uh, probation. Are there any other big misunderstandings or myths out there that uh, people might be surprised to have put, uh, put right?
1: Yeah, a, a big one, and I'd get called into the governor's office on this on a regular basis, is um, criminals, parolees under supervision do bad things. And there are people that are still uh, surprised by that fact because they're on, <laughs> they're on parole supervision. You don't park a parole agent in their bedroom every day, uh, so they, they go out and do bad things and uh, people are still surprised at that. <laughs> uh,
0: so it's not the uh, perfect deterrent. some people no no, it's it. not. It's not. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so if you had to serve time, uh, where do you want to serve it?
1: Well, I've actually had guys tell me this they would rather spend three years in prison than a year in jail.
0: Really? Uh, And why is that?
1: Uh, Because the prisons are designed to do time. Jails are just, most jails anyway, are, are smaller, confined spaces. You're, there's not a lot of movement, very little rec space, no programs to speak of, but in Mm -hmm. the prison, there's more, more freedom, if you will, Uh, more movement, uh, more, more program opportunities. Visiting is better. Just doing time is better in, in prison than it is in, in a local jail.
0: That, that would seem to be counterintuitive at the, on the face of it, but it makes sense mm-hmm. the way you described it. Kind of a dangerous question maybe from a political standpoint, but uh, with your background and your experiences, how, how do you feel about the idea of rehabilitation?
1: You know, early in my career, I was not, uh, not a big believer because um, I worked in the security housing unit for a number of years. And the security housing unit is a prison within a prison. So if you, if you kill somebody in the general population, you came to my unit. It was the largest housing unit in the United States at Folsom Prison in one building. And there was 1,000 inmates tucked in this one concrete building. And every one of them was there uh, serving a security housing unit term. So you got the worst of the worst, and you're dealing with that and, the, and that behavior all day long. And you really start to question if there's any chance of rehabilitation. Uh, and for that population, maybe not, uh, or not, not very often, but I ran across a couple of inmates who, you know, they were gang members and they were, you know, Aryan brotherhood and, but there was something about them, that they they were looking at getting out soon and knew they were going to be coming back and they were scared, um, and they didn't know how to break the cycle. And that started getting me thinking about, okay, there, there must be something we can do. And then one of, the, uh, one of the assignments I had in my career was I was the um, assistant director of the Office of Substance Abuse Programs. And we set up uh, drug treatment programs in a number of prisons based on a therapeutic community model. And you'd get in there and you know, we actually had community staff come in and do the, do the program rather than correctional staff. And for about the last year before they were released on parole supervision, you had the inmates kind of enmeshed in this therapeutic community environment, all preparing uh, for release. And then you follow that up with some kind of a continuity of care where that treatment was continued in in the community. And we saw some real changes there. And it kind of showed me that under the right circumstances for the right population, you can make a difference. And there's a different way to do corrections than just lock them up and throw away the key
0: well i'm glad to hear that i think uh people who know my background might be surprised to to learn that i i do believe in rehabilitation as well uh i also don't believe in its uh in its absolute uh, success in other words uh, as you just described really really well uh, rehabilitation is possible I also believe it's not possible for everyone. So, you know, I mean, let take it from the experts, folks who have not been jaded by their experiences in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> uh. Um, well we've been talking about your your uh, career in corrections but uh, we're really here to talk about your career as a, a crime fiction author and <laughs> in fact uh, in fact your email the first part of your email i think is Crimewriter at <laughs> so yep, <it> is. <laughs> so that's definitely part of your identity uh, and you've had a number of books out a couple of them in a series uh, uh, the All detective right. penley mystery series at what cost was the first one? What was the, uh, the genesis of detective Penley? Did he just come to you in a, uh, you know, in a flash of realization or is he an amalgam of a lot of people that you've known or, or how did that come about?
1: It's probably the latter. He was, uh, Penley seems to be kind of a, a mix of quite a few, uh, officers and detectives that I worked with, uh, over the years. This series takes place in Sacramento and I worked very really closely with the Sacramento police department, uh, when I was, uh, the parole uh, director, uh, so I got to know quite a few of the detectives, the and the brass there in the in the department. And this this guy Penley is kind of a, a mash of about three or four of the detectives that uh, that I worked with during that time.
0: Well, the book opens up with a pretty graphic crime scene, and I don't think it's a spoiler if no. we if we lay that out. So, uh, tell us about that first scene so people can get a feel of what they're. What they're in for if they pick up this uh, this series? Yeah, yeah uh, the detective uh, shows
1: up on the on the crime scene, and the crime scene is uh, is a kind of a remote riverbank outside of Sacramento, and he's faced with basically part of a human corpse, and it's basically a hollowed out uh, section of torso, uh, and he recognizes a tattoo on the on the torso as one of the local gang members that he's dealt with in the past, so. It's just a bizarre kind of crime, and here he is. Now he's going to go down that trail.
0: He has to figure out what happened there with that uh, right. that killing. Um, and that doesn't end the series. You have a second book in the series, Buried the Past, um, right. which also has John Penley. But you have a, another character uh, in that book as well that you introduce.
1: Yeah. Um, in both books, John's partner is Paula Newberry. I featured Paula a little bit more in the follow up in Bury the Past. Primarily, I wanted to kind of highlight her role in the way she was actually a lot of fun to write. I wanted to highlight some of the issues that women have working in, in this field in law enforcement. It's not easy. Um, and I've seen that many of them have to work twice as hard to get the same recognition that their male counterparts, uh, get my daughter's a, uh, a peace officer. And I've seen one of, some of the things that she's had to go through in her career. And, uh, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And I think Paula kind of comes out of it, uh, as kind of a kick-ass character. I, I really like writing her.
0: I have a character in the river city series, uh, Katie McLeod, who, uh, is a patrol officer. And, uh, I really try to explore some of those same same issues uh, with her, mm-hmm. and, and and not surprisingly, she's a character that over the course of the series, uh, uh, by the third book, certainly has become the core of the series for me. Um, mm-hmm. But it is a little bit interesting. A couple of middle-aged white guys are talking about writing female characters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I
1: mean, it's it, she's she's a kick to write, and there's there's something that's kind of. Um, liberating i think to write it because i'm not in that same old mold of the same old you know white middle-aged detective guy you know this is Mm -hmm. something a little different i can explore a lot of different uh relationships and issues that she has that uh, maybe it just didn't or wouldn't have with uh
0: henley as writers you are always going to write characters that are a stretch for you and and Mm -hmm. just uh writing the other the opposite gender is is just one of them And, you know, I have to expect that, like myself, you worked closely for a very long period of time with people like some of the characters that you write, including women. Uh, And, and so, uh, you know, we try to fairly represent what we saw and experienced. Um, You had a long career. Um, Did you see significant changes in, in, in that area over the course of your career? Like where things were for a female in law enforcement and at the beginning of your career versus where it was by the time you retired? Uh, Yeah, I really
1: did. Early in my career, I was at, um, for example, I worked at Folsom, Folsom prison and there were very few female officers and women started to become more and more in, in uh, ingrained in, in the operation. And, uh, they met with a lot of resistance. Um, I mean, sexual harassment back then was just off the charts, but I think folks started to realize that uh, they added quite a bit to just what we did, uh, as a, as a job. Uh, I mean the women could get in there and just verbally uh, de-escalate a situation with some of these uh, some of these guys that uh, that we were quick to go an opposite direction with and mm-hmm. it, it kind of uh, it really helped us do a better job I think.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it really puts on display the value of diversity in your in your workforce because you know every problem, has multiple solutions to it. uh, But not every person is capable of finding their way to those multiple solutions. And so if you have some diversity there, you know, I mean, sometimes you got to thump some melons in this career field. I hate to say it, but it's true. People are going to fight with you. And so you have to have physical capabilities. But I think you would probably agree that 90% of the time you can actually resolve a situation with you uh-huh. know, some diplomacy and some good verbal right. skills and uh you know and, and women are just as good if not better at that in general uh, than mm-hmm. their male counterparts and so i have great admiration for the women that i worked with in my career and uh, i think that's why i featured one you know one of the characters so prominently in the books and it sounds like that's yeah. how uh, how paula got to be so uh, prominent in buried the past
1: yeah exactly so that.
0: what's going on in there that that uh, Penley and Newberry get involved in.
1: Actually, with without that, what cost? It's kind of got an interesting uh, origin story on that one. Came to me from a couple of incidents in prison. I was working in the security housing unit, and there was an Aryan Brotherhood member on the yard that was stabbing another inmate. So we shot him, and he died from his uh, his injuries. And we got a call from the hospital saying they want to donate his organs. And we worked with this this net, this dirty, filthy, Nazi, you know, low rider, who'd want those organs kind of guy. And right on the heels of that, we had an officer whose son needed a bone marrow transplant. So we all got on the registry and you know, got set up to do that. And something clicked with that connection was if I had a son who was that sick, would I really care where the organs came from? Mm-hmm. And probably not. Mm-hmm. So I kind of used that in, I mean, at what cost? You At What Cost, John Penley, uh, our main character, our detective, is on the trail of a serial killer who seems to be harvesting his victim's organs. But John Penley's son needs a kidney transplant. So the, the moral dilemma John faces is, does he catch the serial killer and bring him to justice? Or does he make a deal with the serial killer to get the organ that his son needs to survive?
0: That's the so dark. That, yeah. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I do my best work in the dark. <laughs> uh, but, so I gotta continue the story in Bury the Past John and his his uh, wife are still dealing with the fallout from the kidney transplant and all the things that happened with with that but Paula finds herself kind of facing a, a situation that there's a, a murder that happens in Sacramento and the DNA is found at the, at the scene that Tracks back to a man who's already in prison. Uh, so how could he be out there committing crimes when she she already put him in prison for a crime? Mm-hmm. He he's an ex cop, was involved in a corrupt uh, drug task force. We had a task force out here locally that that went bad. Uh, there were thirty two federal uh, indictments that came down on the on the uh, the drug task force. So I kind of use that as a as a backdrop for what could happen if one of these task forces goes goes bad, Paula finds that uh, it starts to spin back on her that people are thinking that she framed the cop that Mm -hmm. put him in prison. So she's got to deal with those issues. And she becomes the target of of the next crime uh, from this guy who's already behind bars. That's a cool twist. It was fun. It was fun to write. And she, uh, like I said, she's just kind of a kick-ass kind of a a character. And uh, I, I like writing her.
0: So, but you wrote a standalone as well. Um, yes, yes. Called Little River, the other side of paradise. Right. Um, and, you know, that has a dark. Uh, topic as well human trafficking. are we seeing are we seeing a theme here <laughs> i think the theme of the day is uh, jim likes to write dark stuff uh, which i'm totally not in touch with at all because i write about rainbows and unicorns but right of
1: uh,
0: course <laughs> but tell us about that because i mean for one thing it's not part of the series uh, it's not right and, and it's uh, i think i haven't read it yet but by the description it, it would appear that the protagonists are are a couple of regular people right
1: they are. It was actually the the first book uh, that I had published. It's basically a human trafficking story, and it's set in Jamaica. So uh, you have a, like you said, a pair a pair of regular people who come together uh, because their daughters turn up missing after a college trip down to Jamaica, and they get uh, embroiled into a uh, human trafficking ring. And it's it's just kind of um, at that time. This was probably. I'm trying to think, 2013 that this came out. Jamaica was one of the worst uh, locations for human trafficking in the Caribbean. Uh, they didn't want to do anything to kind of highlight their issues because they didn't want to hurt the tourist trade that they relied on at the in the island. You know, since then, they've come up a little bit on the United Nations network of tier two nations that uh, have issues with human trafficking. But yeah, it was kind of an interesting thing to explore. And then I went down to Jamaica a couple of times and talked to folks locally. And uh, it, it's a real issue. They're aware of it. They know it's there. But it, it mostly preys upon some tourists, but largely folks in the poorer areas of Jamaica. Parents think that they're you know, going to send them off to a nice trade school and they end up selling them into uh, human trafficking.
0: It's crazy. It, it would seem to me to not be very intelligent as a criminal to target victims that have a high profile of any kind. I mean, right. and, and certainly the daughters of American citizens who have some means. Uh, you know, set aside the sociological parts of it, or what you may like mm-hmm. or not like about the reality of it. But those folks have some clout and. And they're not just going to go. Oh, geez, that's a terrible tragedy. I lost my daughter, and I don't know where she is. And then not do anything. Right. So, uh, right. Which is exactly what your protagonists do, right? They, they mm-hmm. investigate. Exactly.
1: They have to overcome the the local, you know, police resistance. You know, not wanting mm-hmm. to look into the case, and the the trafficker is a is a high profile gangster in the Montego Bay area. So they they have to deal with all of that overlay on finding their their girls.
0: Well, I guess that's the flip side of it, too. I mean, I can talk about, you know, these are American citizens, and that's a high-profile snatch to to make. But at the same time, you know, we're a very clannish species, and when you're in somebody else's... Mm-hmm. area the rules are different you know yeah so right. what you're you're a prominent person where you come from well here you you know i mean you're you're nothing you know <laughs> and we've got your daughter so you know right bye right you know, so i can totally see that for sure when we're talking about you know dark topics or whatever um you know i i did a little bit of uh investigation me and detective google my partner and uh there, there's a there's a couple of places where you have a, a bio that says Uh, upcoming topics and before i ask you for some specific uh, work that you've got coming up i just want to Hmm. run down this list of future topics uh, according (laughs) to your bio Uh, okay so black market for organs right uh, homelessness Mm -hmm. uh domestic terrorism political corruption and the pharmaceutical industry so are are these are these still on tap
1: yeah i think all of those you mentioned are part or parcel of standalones that are either written or out on submission or they're being revised now. So I think there's three standalones there and another new procedural that could be a series.
0: Well, that is some dark stuff. Uh, what what do, you, do you have anything coming out in the near future? The stuff coming out
1: most recently is going to be two short stories that I have in two anthologies that are going to be coming out. The first coming out will be April 22nd, I believe. It's um, called Drowned Lands is the uh, uh, anthology title. That's a cool uh, title. Cap- yeah. Kathleen Tomlinson uh, is the editor. Uh, I worked with her last year on an immigration-themed uh, mm-hmm. uh, anthology with Chris Radigan. Um, it's a lot of fun to work with. She's a great editor. My uh, story is called uh, Moldy Cash and a Getaway. It has to do with flooding. And there has to be mm-hmm. a death that, those were the only requirements in the, ah. in the thing so that was a fun one to write then the the other one uh, the other short story I have coming out in uh, June is in the shattering glass anthology that's the inaugural nasty woman press anthology that Kelly Stanley put together uh, and this uh, anthology is like a who's who of, of crime fiction there's just uh, I mean Heather Graham and alexander sokolov and Uh, Just, I mean, you name it, there's, I'm just happy to be a part of it. And I did a a story that deals with corruption in a women's prison. Should be fun.
0: Will there be another Penley novel down the road, do you think? Um,
1: If not Penley, very Um, Penley-like. I'm I'm playing with a a Paula character that's even, it's kind of in her vein, but she has a little bit more freedom. So I'm, I'm playing with one of those right now.
0: Well, I, you know, I interview a number of uh, crime fiction authors on this show and some of them are, are former cops. Uh, I, but I think you're the the first person from the corrections field that I've had on the show. And yeah. I, I do believe that, uh, you know, readers appreciate, uh, obviously the book has to be a well-written book and compelling characters and a great story. I mean, that's all every writer, reader wants that. Uh, but I think readers appreciate that insider baseball expertise that, you know, mm-hmm. a, a former practitioner can, can bring for someone who hasn't read, uh, the Penley novels. Would you say you inject a lot of that into, into those?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, but not to the point where it's, it's, uh, it detracts from, from the story. I mean, in very, the past, I think I cut 15,000 words out in one of the final edits. There was just kind of procedural stuff that, you know, how things happen in prison. And it was interesting. And, you know, the Probably the best words ever written, but uh, they're, they're gone. <laughs> those darlings uh, are those darlings yeah. are
0: now rotting corpses.
1: <laughs> exactly, but no, it made for a much, uh, much more faster paced story to get that stuff out of the way. It, it was interesting, but it didn't drive the story forward, so it had to go.
0: I suppose that the expertise that you know, former practitioners like you or I bring should be utilized in much the same way that research is utilized by any author. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, you get so enamored with what you're researching that you want to put as much of it into the book as you can. And sometimes, right. you you know, a a, tea, a teaspoon is better than a cup most times. And uh, yeah, well, Jim, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time, basically, since we met in St. Petersburg. Uh, so I'm glad we finally got to make it happen.
1: Yeah, me too. It's a lot of fun. And it's always good to see you and uh, Colin and the rest of the gang at, uh, at conferences and I'm sure we'll see it hopefully soon.
0: Well, there you are, folks. Uh, Like I said, uh, Jim's a very sincerely nice guy. I think you probably heard that come through in the interview. And uh, uh, interesting background, and I'm pretty excited to dive further into his books. Uh, On the next episode of Wrong Place or Right Crime, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk to uh, a writer who is primarily an editor. Chris Radigan, who uh, currently is the editor at uh, All Due Respect, uh, which is an imprint of Down and Out Books. Uh, He's had an interesting uh, career in editing, uh, and uh, and I thought it would be uh, a nice change of pace uh, for the writers out there uh, and those of you who are interested in a little inside baseball to hear about things from the editor's point of view. Uh, I had the pleasure of... uh, having one of my books recently edited uh, by Chris, and so I can attest to his uh, skill set. I uh, certainly knows uh, of that which he speaks. So that is on the next episode of A Wrong Place, A Right Crime. I'd like to say thanks to Jim for coming on the show, and to Downnut Books for always being a great sponsor, and most of all to you, the listener, for firing up this podcast once again, listening to Jim and me talk, and... uh Stay in here till the final music plays. I hope you stay healthy, stay safe, and let's get through this together. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you gotta be in the wrong place to write crime.